How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers. Because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to continue my conversation with Doug Brinkley, the Catherine Sonoff Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University, as we discuss the unfinished presidency, not so much of Jimmy Carter, but of other people who've served since Jimmy Carter, which is to say, what are other presidents done since Jimmy Carter to make their post-presidential years fruitful? Thank you very much, Doug, for joining me. Thank you, David, for having me. Appreciate it. So after Jimmy Carter finished his presidency, Ronald Reagan served as president for eight years. Um, after he left the White House, what did Reagan do? Did he try to emulate Carter in many ways, or did he try to do different things? You know, the one thing about Ronald Reagan is that he would never dream of emulating Jimmy Carter. He really didn't care for Carter. Um, part of it was when Carter uh, met Reagan in 1980, after he lost the election, Carter started kind of uh, preaching or scolding Reagan. He'd have to get up at the crack of dawn and work all day and read all these documents. And Reagan just laughed and said, oh, I, I don't go working before nine in the morning, so it'll all have to wait. Their styles were so dramatically different as people. Reagan, great on television, a great communicator. Carter, not so much. Um, Carter, on the other hand, somebody who did micro-read everything and documents and was very meticulous uh, at times to his benefit, like the Camp David Accords, where you know Reagan would have a large strategy like how to negotiate with Gorbachev and, uh, and, and met great success. But Reagan went back to California, the state he loved, and uh, we know that he had Alzheimer's disease. Reagan was never the same man after he was shot in 1981, but he healed and, and ran two terms. But Mrs. Reagan was keenly aware of a bit of a slowdown by the end of his presidency, no signs of Alzheimer's per se. But he fell off a horse early in his post-presidency while riding in Mexico, and he ended up at Mayo Clinic, and that's where he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, had a head injury too. And um, alas, Reagan doesn't have the post-presidency. Remember, he was much older than, than Jimmy Carter. Um, but he did, right after he left office, gave $1 million paid speeches in Japan and elsewhere, raised some money, wrote his memoirs, built the Reagan Library at uh, Simi Valley, California. And a big similarity is there is no Ronald Reagan without Nancy Reagan, just as there's no Jimmy Carter without Rosalind Carter. So they both uh, had marriages that really were tight. And uh, I think in that one regard, uh, there is a deep similarity. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, did build his library, and um, it became one of the most popular presidential libraries, I think, because in part, um, it was an area where a lot of people 
would go in Los Angeles area, but also they had a model of the uh, Air Force One there, which was a big attraction. So after Jimmy Carter and after Ronald Reagan, the next former president was George Herbert Walker Bush. What did he do after his presidential years were over? Well, Bush 41 was seen as being a kind of patriarch uh, of the Bush family. Some people called it a dynasty. And there was always a thought that either George W. Bush or Jeb Bush might become president. So there was still an active role in international affairs and uh, the presidency with Bush 41. He was thinking of building his presidential library in Houston, actually at Rice University, where I teach. But James Baker beat him to the punch and opened up a public policy center at Rice. And instead of building his library in downtown Houston, Bush 41 did it at College Station, Texas A&M. Bush 41 loved the Aggies. Bush had formerly been head of the CIA and Texas A&M has a lot of undergrads who will join CIA. So there was an affinity for that particular university. Um, When I published the Reagan Diaries, it surprised me how close Reagan and Bush were. There used to be rumors in the press that they weren't close because Barbara Bush and Nancy weren't close. But, you know, weekly Reagan would include Bush into um, meetings and breakfasts, lunches. As ex-president, Bush 41 started doing things he wanted to do, like jumping out of airplanes or, uh, um, you know, helping his kids' career. Uh, The Reagan's team, Deaver and Meese and others, uh, uh, Marty Anderson, they were able to really promote Reagan's legacy in a way as a great American president. Bush 41 didn't have that interest. Uh, I mean, he co-wrote his memoir with Brent Skokoff instead of doing his own book, um, but he he what he did have was these the ch- children that had uh, ambitions to be governor and, of course, president. So after uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, the next president was Bill Clinton. What did he do with his ex-presidency or post-presidential years? Interestingly enough, uh, you know, Clinton is the one who saw what Jimmy Carter did and said, well, Carter rose the bar, particularly in global affairs, that I'm going to beat Carter. I'm going to do more. The Clinton Foundation will do bigger projects. I'll fundraise more. I know how to operate in New York and Beverly Hills and the Silicon Valley uh, in a way that Carter did not. And the Clinton Foundation is born really as a, almost a competition to the Carter Center, although, you know, their programs are often different. Uh, in addition to that, um, Bill Clinton became very close with George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, we've had these former adversaries become friends before in American history. Jimmy Carter was great friends with Gerald Ford, even though Carter had beat Ford. Well, Clinton had beat Bush 41, and yet Clinton almost became like an extended member of the Bush family. Cut out of that love were the Carters and the Reagans. So Bush's Bush's and Clinton's got much much tighter. And Bill Clinton built his presidential library in Little Rock. Just now, virtually weeks ago, uh, Hillary Clinton has uh, said that her papers will go to the Clinton Library in Arkansas. There was some thought they might end up at Columbia University, where she's been an occasional professor, or build her own library as the historic first woman to get a nomination to be president of the United States and actually won the popular vote over Trump. But alas, she's committed to the Arkansas story. And the Clinton Foundation, who has been operating out of New York, D.C., uh, is also going to be doing its primary work out of um, 
out of Little Rock. So uh, Bill Clinton um, has um, also been involved in um, some international affairs, and he's also been involved in trying to help Democrats get elected. Was that He was a pretty popular former president. So he spoke at the Democratic Convention for Barack Obama and um, done some other things to campaign for Democrats. So he stayed pretty active politically. Is that fair to say? Exactly. And that's what he shared with the Bush family. After he left office, he, everything was about Hillary uh, becoming U.S. Senator from New York and Secretary of State. And then the thought was she'd be president. And Bill Clinton was her uh, loving spouse, coach, deep in the political world. I mean, if Hillary would have gotten elected over Trump, I mean, Bill Clinton would have been back in the White House. But her loss has sort of, you know, shrunk Clinton in in some ways. But there was that period, particularly when Obama ran against Romney. I'm not sure Obama would have gotten reelected without what Bill Clinton did. He was on fire in speeches and, you know, he was nicknamed the great explainer. He could break down complex public policy issues like nobody's business and communicate directly with the public uh, One of the great retail politicians, Bill Clinton, in the end, even now as ex-president, I've spent time at Chappaqua with him. And on any given day, he's talking to somebody at the Starbucks he meets or at the grocery store or wanders into a bookstore. And uh, he likes talking to voters. Uh, He's a political force of nature in a way that Bush 41 was more of a CIA government foreign affairs guy. And uh, Jimmy Carter was more of a Christian, you know, Baptist leader. But Carter did raise the bar on all these guys, David, I mean, of what a a post-president can be. Uh, Ex-presidents have had roles before. I mean, John Quincy Adams had left the White House. It was 16 years a congressman from Massachusetts fighting for the abolition of slavery. Uh, William Howard Taft left the White House one term, but became a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Theodore Roosevelt refused to leave the public stage and ran the Bull Moose Party, the most successful third party in American history. So ex-presidents don't always fade away. I mean, Herbert Hoover did well as an ex-president running commission reports and the like. Uh, But what Carter did by winning that Nobel Prize for his ex-presidential work and staying so global uh, really set a bar for Bill Clinton. And I see Barack Obama emulating it also. Well, after uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, we have the presidency of um, George W. Bush. And uh, George W. Bush, after eight years, what did he decide to do with his post-presidential years? Well, anybody who's a two-term president, you take them seriously. But he left the White House in in low public esteem, a little bit like Jimmy Carter. Uh, After all, we were in the middle of the Great Recession. The war in Iraq uh, had turned stagnant, or at least the American public didn't have the heart for it anymore. He was roundly criticized for inaction in Katrina just towards the end of his two terms. Uh, but he went. He, he knew what he wanted. He went back to the Dallas area that he loves. Uh, he loves Texas. He goes every year with Laura down to Big Bend National Park in Marathon, Texas. And he really changed his life course when he had been an oil guy in Midland, Texas. Um, he built his library at Southern Methodist University and lives just down the road from it. And boy, you go to Dallas, David, George W. Bush is just loved in in that Dallas-Fort Worth area because he prefers going to a Texas Rangers baseball game than, uh, you know, being at a White House dinner. Uh, And he rehabilitated himself somewhat. It's not a full-bore rehabilitation yet, 
Uh, but his daughter, uh, Jenna, is um, the, the popular talk show hostess on uh, NBC Today show, running a book club uh, that gets a lot of notice. He started painting wounded warriors and portraits of others. And people were, were very taken uh, with George W. Bush's being, a, a, you know, a, a above average amateur painter. And, uh, and you know, that, that side to him we never knew before. He wrote a book, Decision Points, which I think is a very good book. Uh, I reviewed it, I believe, for the Financial Times when it came out, and I liked it a lot. It well-written, thought through. Uh, you know, there was a hope that Jeb Bush might become president after him, and he didn't want to do anything to get in Jeb's way in the wrong way, just like Bill Clinton didn't want to get into Hillary Clinton's way. And he is like Jimmy Carter. George W. Bush has zero appetite for being in the political whirlwind. And interestingly enough, if you bore down on both of those two presidents, they both love Harry Truman um, a lot. Carter has told me his favorite president is Truman. And George W. Bush will say Lincoln sometimes, but they both saw modeling their ex-presidents at meaning Truman left Washington and moved back to independence and got their hair cut by the local barber and took local walks and met with the people they used to know. And Bush 43 and Carter share that desire for being a little more uh, uh, not in the the stranglehold of Washington style politics. Um, but they're, of course, willing to work on the global sphere when asked. So after George W. Bush, uh, we have uh, Barack Obama who served eight years as well. Uh, what has he done in the couple of years he's, since he's left the presidency? I guess it's now about five years since he's left the presidency, or more than that, actually, uh, probably six or seven. Well, you know, because we don't have a House of Lords in the United States, there's no automatic role for an ex-president. But we've kind of fallen into one, which is you leave office, you heal your wounds, take time to repair damaged relationships, and then fundraise get your presidential library built. These are extravagant affairs that take a lot of time and thought from location to architectural design. And then in addition to the, that library, there's the foundation concerns of what you're going to do, being this A-list celebrity ex-president. And then they're all expected to write a memoir, A, because they get a lot of money for them, big advances, um, but also to set a historical record down. And that takes some years to build the library, write your memoirs. Barack Obama um, was starting to write one book about his time in the presidency, and he ended up stopping it. And he's going to do two volumes um, because it was too much for him to do in one. And I felt bad for Obama because he had made a name for himself as a creative writer. So the expectations were high. Uh, uh, Bush, nobody thought of George W. Bush as a writer. So he, he had a little freer reign to do a different kind of book, but uh, Obama was eyeing models for his memoir, people like Henry Adams, the education of Henry Adams, or George Kennan's memoirs, or Dean Acheson's President at the Creation, really great books. And I believed with promise, the promise he, he uh, fulfilled that in his first volume, but he's heavily working on the second. And like Clinton was for a while, Obama is now the closer. In baseball terms, he's the relief pitcher you want, meaning when Joe Biden gets into a jam as the election nears and polls tighten, getting Barack Obama out there as a surrogate and Michelle Obama are the gold standard in the Democratic Party. There are no better, more effective spokespeople for Biden than the Obamas. 
But do, do you see uh, President Obama trying to solve global problems the way Jimmy Carter did? Or is that just not what his uh, real interest is now? I thought it would because I, uh, I, I thought he would maybe a little more on that front. Um, but he's making a lot of money, Barack Obama. He may become a billionaire ex-president, possible. He got very involved with Netflix and the Hollywood world. And just like Al Gore once tried to create a liberal TV network that didn't go anywhere. Uh, I think Obama sees the power of podcasts, of documentaries, of of uh, using, you know, really how to media connect people. Um, and then he's very, very concerned about getting young people into democracy, the fragility of our system. How do you keep people, you know, hope alive with young people dealing with the world of climate change and dysfunctional Washington politics? Um, so he's really about voter registration, more like John Lewis, I would say, than he is uh, Jimmy Carter going to the forlorn outer reaches of uh, Zambia or, or Zimbabwe. Now, um, Donald Trump has been a former president for four years. Um, he has not announced, as far as I know, a presidential library site or any committee to build a presidential library. Um, his post-presidency seems to be about the last election or maybe getting ready to run up again. So how would you describe his post-presidential years? Um, very strange because he he made some money going on around with Bill O'Reilly and others to get some uh, the lecture fees, which is typical, I'd say. But he never felt the need to write a big memoir about himself in, uh, in a grand way. Uh, books aren't his thing. Um, tweeting or social media, I should say, is. Uh, he's been able to stay in the public eye by commenting on any and every issue. He's been basically running for his reelection since he's left office, but he's deeply hampered by all of these indictments, uh, the bills he's ratcheting up. Uh, I think in his case, the fact that Mar-a-Lago is a refuge in Westminster to a degree too, uh, with golf. And uh, I feel that that's his way he uh, de-stresses through golf, sunshine. Um, I feel he's like a battery trying to uh, keep the energy flow going and a strike back at, um, you know, the the Biden folks, but also what he feels is a corrupt deep state. And it eats up all of his time, all of his energy, this, uh, this reach to become reelected. And we'll see whether he does or not. If he loses and is a one-term president, we'll still be looking at him as a major figure of our time. And for Trump to have gotten three Supreme Court justices in in one term already is pretty remarkable. I don't know what he'll do with presidential library, whether he'd ever turn over Mar-a-Lago for such a thing or Westminster, or whether somebody in Las Vegas will build a Trump Tower museum out there. Even people that love Trump and are detractors will say he's a wild card uh, that doesn't fit any mold. So what will happen in his later years, uh, we'll have to see whether he makes the White House or whether he's uh, uh, back on his own in the private sector. There was a book written recently about the former presidents and how they get along. And I think uh, if I remember uh, the book, it said that they tend to meet each other at uh, funerals of previous presidents or at the presidential library dedications. But generally, with a few exceptions, Bush and Clinton doing some things together or Carter and Ford doing some things together, the ex-presidents don't meet with each other that much. Um, is that fair to say? 
I think it is. You know, uh, there is, though, this strand in American history that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams really disliked each other, both brilliant founders for different skill sets. We all know that story. But later in life, they began a very uh, elegant correspondence uh, and a way to show that even though we were adversaries in a democracy, we now treat each other with civility and respect and a kind of genuine affection for being in the political arena at the same time. I do think Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, that spirit was there. I think Bill Clinton and Bush 41, that spirit there. But Barack Obama is not personally close to Bill and Hillary Clinton or Jimmy Carter or uh, the Bush family. I think the warmest relationship that's developed, ironically, is George W. Bush and Michelle Obama, who really like each other. And, you know, it's become a symbol at any of these funerals you're mentioning that he now has a bit of a gag almost, I think, um, slips her hard candy you know, for the ceremonies, and she smiles as just a a sign of affection. Um, But they do well together. I mean, there's all the presidents are are kind of of that exclusive club and have respect where Trump um, is not part of that scene of the of the other former presidents. They don't want to be around. Can you ever see um, Donald Trump being part of the ex-presidents club where he actually either goes to the funerals of any of these presidents if they predecease him or goes to any library dedications, or that's just not something he's ever going to do? I think he would do it, but uh, I'm not sure if the the family of deceased want him there. And um, with that said, you know, the person that he has a little bit of affection for Donald Trump is Bill Clinton. At one point, Clinton was having a hard time getting into a golf club up by Chappaqua, and Trump wanted to help him get in. Uh, he's publicly said, Trump, that if politics wasn't as brutal as it is, he he wouldn't mind having some chats with Clinton. Uh, so th- not that there's a, an affection with a capital A there, but uh, a little bit. It's a difference between if he's President Trump, you can go to any funeral. And I would urge him, if any of our other presidents died and he were president, to go. I think it's good for the public to see these leaders interact together that Democrat or Republican, we're still Americans. We live our lives, David, in these eras, the Nixon years, the Carter years, the Clinton years, on and on. Um, And so it's important as a healing gesture that they seem to be um, at least um, respectful when one of the former presidents dies. When President George Herbert Walker Bush died, I think President Trump did not come to that funeral. And I thought I had read that George Herbert Walker Bush made it clear he really would have preferred that Trump not come. Do you, do you know about that? Yes, he preferred him not to come, period. Remember, Bush 41 is first and foremost a World War II veteran and a um, CIA director and somebody who understands the federal government. And Trump is somebody he dislikes immensely. Uh, Trump has disliked the Bush family from the 1980s onwards. Uh, Probably the Bush family dislikes Trump more than the Obamas uh, on a personal level, um, because being in the same party, you know, Trump denounced Jeb Bush in ad hominem terms and uh, and mocked the big accomplishment of George W. Bush's Iraq war. And here Trump is saying the whole thing was a charade and Bush should be shamed for bringing us into the, the war. At the same time, Bush is painting wounded warriors. So 41 and 43 had long disdain for Donald Trump. So do you think there's any value to 
former presidents getting together, either issuing statements saying, we think this should be the policy of the United States and we support a particular president. I think that has been done a few times. For example, I think some of the presidents got together to support, was it the uh, admission of China to the WTO or something like that? They all came together, I think, at the time of the 200th anniversary of the White House for a ceremony there at dinner. But do you think that there's any value to kind of encouraging former presidents to get together and, and have a united voice, or it's just too complicated under our system to do that? I certainly hope they all get together uh, for America 250. Um, I mean, these were American presidents who are only 250 years old, and they should be able to be in the same room together, shake hands and remind people of the continuity of our democratic system. Um, I think it's important for a sitting president to use ex-presidents as a resource. Certainly, Bill Clinton would call Richard Nixon all the time to talk to him about Russia. Good for Bill Clinton. Whatever you think of Nixon, he knew a lot about the Soviet Union, spent decades um, thinking about it, had orchestrated detente with the Soviet Union and anti-ballistic missile treaties. So why wouldn't Clinton consult with Nixon? Or why should Joe Biden now not talk to George W. Bush about AIDS, HIV in Africa? After all, Bush 43 and getting funding, um, you know, um, to arrest the heinous virus uh, throughout Africa. Um, things that a particular ex-president has a strong suit on, I would hope a sitting president would lean on them for advice and counsel. On presidential libraries, uh, the first one was FDRs, and every president since then, except Donald Trump, has had a presidential library. But the cost of them has gotten quite high. I think early on, Jimmy Carter's presidential library probably cost in the 20 millions of dollars. Uh, Barack Obama is now raising I think almost $2 billion, not just for the library, because it's really, uh, there's no more libraries. They're really, uh, everything's digitized, but for the museum and the center. And do you think there should be some constraints on how much money can be raised for these things, or there's no problem with raising money post your presidency? I think what's happening, as you see with Barack Obama's in Chicago, is um, they're raising money themselves. They don't want the National Archives imprimatur on the um, library. So it's not going to be part of our National Archives system like the other presidents since Herbert Hoover. You're seeing them starting to use the term presidential library. Nobody has copyright on it. Um, there's in recent years an Abraham Lincoln presidential library opened in Springfield, Illinois. Um, Ulysses S. Grant one in Mississippi. And in the summer of 2026, North Dakota is doing the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. The difference is those facilities, it's not necessitated that the archives go to those places. They become more shrines for the former president, a tourist magnet, places to, to you know, do public programming. I love the presidential libraries, David, because some of them are scattered places and it brings public policy and guest lecturers and people that write books out to different parts of the country. Um, and in that regard, it, it, it decentralizes uh, the archives from being just a Washington, D.C., Maryland kind of uh, institution, maybe with a few paper flagships in Laguna, Miguel, California, or St. Louis or something, and spreads the history backstory around the country. So I'm a fan of the presidential libraries. At the same time, man, they're expensive. And they don't get quite the turnstile that they used to be now that we're in a 
digital age and so much history information is readily available on our iPhones. Right. So um, as we finish this conversation, uh, is there something that you think the country would be better off if we did with former presidents, if we had them speak regularly together or meet regularly together? Or do you think the system we have now, which more or less they they, they get together only on funerals or presidential library dedications, generally works out okay? I like the system as it is in a perfect world, I suppose. If I were working in the White House, I might try to shop the idea of on President's Day, getting the former presidents together for a White House dinner every year or every other year uh, as just a symbolic way of, of celebrating the institution of the executive branch. Uh, I think the public would like that. I don't think it would cost much. Uh, but it will remind people that even though we're in these bitter political feuds, which are our four-year presidential election cycles now, uh, you know, that 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 there's still a healing moments to come. And so I, I would be all for that. But it would depend on a particular sitting president wanting to push that and uh, and hopefully get a response. And when people get a certain age, uh, particularly if they have an illness, they're not all that thrilled to come to Washington sometimes. I mean, I famously remember reading a letter of the great Pulitzer Prize winning novelist William Faulkner who was like living around Charlottesville and wrote John F. Kennedy, it's too long a journey for me to come to the White House. He didn't want to go to Charlottesville to the White House. Uh, and so when people hit a certain amount of notoriety and they're living in their 70s and 80s, the idea of coming to Washington isn't always thrilling. So uh, for people who may not know this, um, I think it's the case that presidents get Secret Service protection for the rest of their lives and their uh, spouses get Secret Service protection for the rest of their lives, and their children get Secret Service protection until I think they're 16, I think it is. And the United States government pays for office space for former presidents as well, though it's modest compared to what the presidents might need for their libraries and so forth. Do you think that's a fair system and we, we handle former presidents reasonably well uh, compared to what we used to do? Because it used to be the presidents never even got pensions or Secret Service protection after they left. Absolutely. I think we're doing pretty well with it. The Secret Service protection is a must. Uh, we live in a crazy world and we're looking at all the gun violence uh, going on. And certainly the family needs that kind of lifetime protection. A pension's only fair. Offering government space makes sense. Some people are, might be worrying about the selling of the presidency, that you leave office and you're able to you know, um, uh, take your, your White House tenure and turn it into a fortune. But that's capitalism at work, and I don't think we should be right. uh, telling an ex-president they they can't make money once they're no longer in government. So uh, I'm all for the system the way that we have it now. I think it's working pretty well. Just to point out, uh, and as a final comment, uh, something always stuck in my brain is that when Harry Truman came back to Washington the first time, he drove his own car. There was no Secret Service protection. I think he stayed at a motel on the trip back. And, um, you know, he just, uh, you know, showed up without any protection, any any big honors or anything like that. I guess we can't uh, likely go back to that kind of era again. I wish we could. It's so colorful and so marvelous. And that the road trip that Truman took leaving Washington for independence is such a lovely and colorful story. But, you know, you, we, we talk about Jimmy Carter. You can go down there to Plains and if you are willing to not come in and out and hang for a few days. You'll see Carter mowing a lawn or interacting with his neighbors and going to church or just taking a walk with uh, uh, grandkids. Uh, 
So some of our ex-presidents devise ways to create a normal environment around them, even though, alas, there's always secret service peering at whatever they do. Doug, this has been a very interesting conversation. I want to thank you for giving us this time, and I appreciate uh, everything you've done for our country in terms of letting people know more about our presidents. Thank you, David. Uh, Back at you. I just admire all you do on keeping American history alive in the public sphere. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Doug. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.